This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. Coming up very soon, the Supreme Court will hear a case which could very well determine the future path of unions in the United States. The case is set to determine whether a union that represents many state workers can charge a fee for that representation. It also questions whether, because of the First Amendment, whether government workers can be charged in the first place. To take a look at this case, we are joined by William Brucher, who is an instructor in labor studies and employment relations at Rutgers University, and also by Daniel DeSalvo, who's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and he's also an associate professor of political science at City College of New York. William, Daniel, great to have you both with us. Thank you both. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. I guess let's start with the importance of this case and uh, how you view that. William, start with you. Well, it is a very important case, and it will affect the future of public sector unions in the United States uh, profoundly. Um, as, uh, as I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail, the precedent set by the Supreme Court in the 1970s allowed for unions, public sector unions, to negotiate so-called fair share fees, uh, where um, people who wanted to opt out of union membership still had to pay for the portion of dues that, that covered representation, collective bargaining, and uh, contract enforcement and, and, and the like. Uh, organizing and other, other things also fall under those fees. So that had been settled precedent for the last uh, 40 or so years. Um, the new case, uh, it's very likely that the Supreme Court conservative majority will overturn the Abood precedent, meaning that um, meaning that those uh, public sector workers who are covered by union contracts who do not wish to be members will now be able to opt out of paying any sort of representational fee at all. And, of course, that will mean that public sector unions like the American Federation of Teachers, the National Education Association, the Service Employees International Union, and of course AFSCME, the plaint, uh, sorry, the defendant in this case, will uh, you know will will stand to lose millions of dollars in revenue. Um, so that is that is a big deal. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, for me, though, the the bigger issues around the case involve um, you know one, what will unions do to uh, to to organize and continue to represent the interests of their members and the, and the interests of public sector workers, and also whether, um, you know, whether this case will have a spillover effect that will affect the bargaining position of working people in the country in general. Dan, what's your reaction? Um, I, I agree uh, with William. The, this case is probably the most important case for public sector labor relations in state and local government um, in more than a generation. And in Part it's important, I think, to note that it's come as a, a free speech issue. It's an issue about compelled speech, whether yeah. charging um, agency fees in the public sector, in particular, as distinct from private sector labor relations. This case would not change anything for uh, unions in the private sector. 
whether the distinct attributes of government employment make it such that charging an agency fee results in forcing workers to subsidize speech with which they disagree. And so that's the, I think, the constitutional, the um, legal issue at stake here. Um, I think Will's also got the consequences of this uh, mostly right, which is that if you, workers are no longer forced to pay into union coffers, many of them will decide that they don't want to be uh, union members or they don't want to certainly pay the fees, right. and that will reduce uh, public sector union membership and the, their, um, the amount of money they collect on an annual basis. Longer, one could imagine that changing the politics of uh, state and local government significantly, uh, if that were to happen, um, public sector unions are very powerful political players in state and local government, and this case could potentially undermine that. But it could also um, not have as big an effect as many people think today. It may be the case that new organizing strategies, efforts by the unions to save off membership losses, um, and or even simply investing more in politics on the basis of a smaller membership base, which is in the strategy of private sector unions, uh, over the last couple of decades, could keep uh, public sector unions as potent political forces. 844 Wharton is the number if you would like to join in. 844 942 7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at bizradio111 or my Twitter account, which is at danloney21. Joining me from uh, Rutgers University, William Brucher, uh, instructor in labor studies and employment relations, and also Daniel DeSalvo, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and also an associate professor at the City College of New York. William, I mean, the history of unions has been, for the most part, associated with some sort of fee payment. So if this yeah. is challenged and it is changed, what change? What happens to unions? Well, obviously, if unions lose revenue uh, from, from agency fees, it does affect the operations of those unions. And, you know, it could, could affect their, their ability to to hire staff, to invest in organizing campaigns, to uh, to invest in legal representation at the bargaining table or in contract enforcement, um, and of course it will you know prompt I think those unions that that uh, wish to you know wish to continue their activities on behalf of their members and to organize new members to rethink their strategies uh, and how and how to do that. And and I think we are already seeing a lot of that among the large public sector unions uh, throughout the country. Um, And and, you know, but at the same time, this problem that 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 is facing public sector unions um, in with the Janus decision has precedent in history. Um, And I'm glad you mentioned history because. Before in the private sector, before the passage of the National Labor Relations Act or the Wagner Act, um, there was no federal law that um, that guaranteed collective bargaining in the private sector. But there were unions. I mean, workers did organize themselves, and they did um, and they did try to use what what power they had, economic leverage or political leverage, to gain gain concessions from their employers. However, at the same time, those unions. Uh, Prior to 1935, and prior to the um, to the, uh, the Supreme Court upholding the Wagner Act a few years later in the 1930s, um, 
employers were also incredibly well organized in many cities and many parts of the country and many industries. So groups like the National Association of Manufacturers, uh, you know, uh, the regional chambers of commerce and other business groups would get together and actually be very effective at blocking uh, blocking collective bargaining of using uh, whatever, you know, local government and, and police forces that they had at their disposal to thwart organizing drives. Of course, you know, many, uh, many labor organizers could wind up in in prison uh, for disturbing the peace or for, uh, you know, restricting trade or whatever mm-hmm. the arguments used to be. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, the labor movement persisted. And also, interestingly, in the public sector, it really wasn't until the 1960s and the 1970s, and in some cases even later, where public sector unions actually gained bargaining rights on a state-by-state level, um, meaning that there are still states in the United States, typically right-to-work states like Georgia, North Carolina, where there is no collective bargaining law that that public sector workers can even use in order to negotiate over wages, hours, and working conditions. And unions in those public sector unions in those states have been historically very weak. But in the free bargaining states or the non-right to work states, uh, such as Pennsylvania, where you are, uh, where in New Jersey, where I'm I'm talking to you from right now, um, you know, over over a series of, of years, you know, public sector workers organized. Uh, sometimes they went on illegal strikes uh, to to force, you know, school boards or to force uh, state agencies or city and county governments to to bargain with them in the absence of collective bargaining law. Or or that kind of labor action actually prompted those states to to grant collective bargaining laws, and then later. 1970s and 1980s, more and more of those unions were able to secure um, agency fee provisions in their contracts. Um, however, those aren't even guaranteed in many places. In fact, unions still would have to negotiate. You know, at some point, had to negotiate for agency fees in the contracts, and they're not. They're not. They're not. They're not everywhere. I mean, there are many places, but they're not everywhere. But, you know, it was through the action of organizing and through, you know, in the workplace, in the community, uh, you know, using political leverage that unions in the public sector have been able to gain real footholds in, mm-hmm. in, these, in, in the non-right-to-work states like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, uh, you know, much of the Northeast, much of the West Coast, historically up until fairly recently in the Midwest as well, although – there's been a proliferation of right-to-work laws in places like Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, and so forth. Um, you know, there there have been real gains in those jobs, uh, you know, in terms of wages and benefits. Um, but, you know, the struggle still continues. I've worked a lot with public sector unions in my career, and, you know, and there's still issues, you know, even in New Jersey, even in Pennsylvania, over working conditions, over the cost of health care, uh, over you know, whether pensions and retirement plans will be adequate, adequately funded from the vantage point of, 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 of union members and, and their unions. And so it's still a struggle, and it will still continue to be a struggle even in, a, even in the post-Afghanist world. But I do, think, I do think unions will, 
you know, many unions will be able to adapt to this to this new environment, but right. it will be a much harder environment going forward. Dan, I'll ask you that same question. What do you see if 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 this ruling does come down against the unions in this case? What do you see as the future for unions? Because as was just laid out, uh, the financial component on it, I think, is 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 an important uh, point to touch on here. That's right. I think uh, you know. Again, this ruling will will not touch private sector unions, which have obviously been under significant you know pressures of their in their own right. Yeah. So the private sector, obviously, automation, globalization, um, the shift to the service sector economy have weakened private sector unions over the last uh, half century, and those trends and those pressures are still going to be there in the private sector. This ruling will only apply to the public sector. And here, again, we have less than half of the states today, about 22 states, allow the collection of agency fees. So this is not going to affect the majority of states. Um, So it's only going to, but the states it is going to affect are going to be, are the biggest and you know, largely industrial states on the coast, California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois. Um, So, what will that mean for public sector labor going forward in terms of its uh, political power and so on? Well, there's really two scenarios. One, it, it really loses members and money and is taken down a notch or two, but right. it still remains a potent political force. The other scenario is one where, um, you know, creative new organizing drives or simply, you know, getting the remaining membership to contribute more to the union's political funds maintains it as its basic political position it has now. The reality is that organizing in the public sector has not been something that's been, say, uh, really dynamic um, yeah. in the in the public sector because the places that are organized or got organized in the 60s and 70s have largely stayed organized. So union membership in the public sector has pretty much held steady at about 35% of state and local employees since 1980. And that number hasn't moved a lot until recent years when Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, and a number of other states in the Midwest began to pass right-to-work laws, which reduced the membership numbers in, in those states. So really, there wasn't a lot of change in terms of organizing going on anyway in the public sector, just because once the public sector got organized, it tended to stay organized. Now, did I see that, I guess, a couple of years ago, uh, a similar type of case was brought forth, uh, and it ended up in a 4-4 deadlock at the Supreme Court because it was right after Justice Scalia had passed away, so his vote obviously was not part of the uh uh was not part of the of the ruling on the case a couple of years ago dan yeah i mean that was a case called uh, coming out of california called friedrichs versus california teachers association which was in many respects nearly identical to the current case janice versus asking where we'll hear on monday uh, it had a couple of other features that this case doesn't have but the core issue of the constitutionality of agency fees was at issue and at least Scalia's arguments and oral, uh, statements and oral argument made it sound like he was ready to side with the four other conservative justices and strike down agency fees as unconstitutional First Amendment violations. So the really that court case then deadlocked in a 4-4 tie, and that's why most observers, I think, today think the court will take the step and overturn the 1977 Abu precedent and strike down agency fees. Really, the only new variable here is Neil Gorsuch being on the court.
844-942-7866 is the number. If you would like to join in with your comments or questions, we're talking about the upcoming uh, Supreme Court case involving unions uh, and the case out of uh, the state of Illinois, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. William, also, part of the, the discussion here involves the situations where you have non-union members that are paying fees for representation as well, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's what the whole case rests on. Uh, Mark Janis, uh, Rebecca Friedrichs from the earlier case that Daniel mentioned um, are, you know, there are there are public sector workers who, you know, for ideological reasons, political reasons, or, or any reason, you know, do not wish to be union members. Right. Uh, yet, in under their contracts, you know, Janice in Illinois, uh, Friedrichs in California are compelled to to pay a a a high per, a a agency fee that is actually a high percentage of of the union dues. And so, you know, what I, I'm sure will happen if if the if the if there is a conservative majority in in the Janus case, you will have you know people like Janus and Friedrichs who will you know voluntarily you know stop you know, paying their agency fee. You know, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, you know, I think the larger question, though, you know, for me is that, you know, what about the millions of other workers who, you know, are are pro-union, who are active in their union, or who just appreciate their, you know, the, the you know, the, their, their contracts, you know, having that working conditions, you know, knowing when, when, or if they're going to get a pay raise, you yeah. know, understanding what their their health insurance uh, contribution is going to be, what their retirement or pension contributions are going to be. You know, for them, I don't think there's going to be an exodus in uh, mass exodus in union membership um, immediately or necess- uh, or even necessarily. That may happen over time as, you know, new members, you know, new workers come in and, and are given the choice of like, OK, I can work and pay nothing, you know, towards 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 uh, towards the union or or I will voluntarily pay dues. And that's where the role of unions come in and, and actually talk to new hires and talk to potential members and and organize them to join around the issues that are important to them. Um and I think there are some differences, too, between, you know, what the Supreme Court ruling will do versus what happened in uh, in uh, Wisconsin several years ago with Act 10. Act 10, uh, passed by Scott Walker and the Republican legislature there, did create right-to-work conditions in the public sector in Wisconsin, but it also... Uh, limited the scope of bargaining uh, around, you know, a very narrow number of issues. It limited the uh, the pay raises that could be negotiated, uh, you know, by a formula that was tied very closely to inflation. Um, and it also and it also changed the law so that that public sector unions would have to recertify, I believe, every year or so. And so, you know, those steps like that really, really targeted the ability of, of unions to organize and function in the public sector in Wisconsin. And I think that, you know, that that to me explains, uh, you know, the decline there a bit more than just removing the uh, the compulsion to pay an agency fee. Um, it's much more targeted than that. And I don't believe the Supreme Court case will speak to any of those other issues around the scope of bargaining or anything like that. 
Again, 844-942-7866 is the number to join in. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So, William, when you, when you look at the state of unions right now in the country, uh, there have been a, a variety of stories over the last several years that have, have talked about a, a reduced membership. And yeah. it doesn't feel like they, they have lost any of their influence. It's just that the numbers have changed a little bit, correct? Well, I mean, I, I think, again, looking at this historically, um, you know, and, and, uh, and also, you know, preface this by saying uh, you know, I'm somebody who's very, you know, very much sympathetic and in favor of unions. Yeah. I do think that um, I do think that 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 the influence of organized labor has diminished, you know, over certainly since the 1980s as a whole. Um, and and I think that's reflected in, of course, declining union density in the private sector. I think that's reflected in, you know, in, in, in instances where where unions have been forced to uh, for or, you know, forced or compelled to to bargain concessionary contracts. Um, but, you know, where, where unions have held steady. So interestingly, in last year, union membership as a whole did not decline. It, it remained level at about, you know, just over 11% total, six, six and a half percent or so in the private sector. And as Daniel said, uh, uh, about 35% in the public sector. And of course that 35% is much, it's much higher than that yeah. in New Jersey and New York. In California, but it's also much lower than that in, in some other states as well. So, so unions have been able to maintain as a political force. Uh, they, you know, they are very adept at, um, at mobilizing members to go door to door to support candidates that support the interests of union members and their organizations. Um, and so they do still, I think, compared to their numbers in the workforce, play a very out, you know. Uh, play a much more substantial role in politics. And again, the free, uh, sorry, not the Friedrichs case now, the Janus versus Asme case um, can, you know, m- you know, we will see how much does that undermine the power of public sector unions. It, it may, you know, it may undermine them greatly. It, it may not, um, or, or at least as we've been talking about, it will cause unions to, to, to think differently about how they how they organize and mobilize members, you know, do they raise, as Daniel said, do they raise dues? Yeah. Um, do they uh, do they try? Do they put in more efforts to um, to to organize the unorganized? I think all those options are on certainly on the table and are being talked about by you know by by active union members and union leaders throughout the country. Um, but politically, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is a very, you know, this, this is a, a very fluid time that we're that we're in and are sure. going into. Yeah. And the other thing I want to mention, too, about politics is that the, um, you know, of course, you know, for Mark Janice, this is a First Amendment case. Yeah. And I understand. The, and I understand where those arguments come from. At the same time, uh, the, you know, the, the support and funding of, of Friedrichs, uh, Friedrichs versus CPA, now Janice versus AFSCME, and related court cases have also come from, you know, very powerful conservative foundations um, and, and, and business interests as well. And, of course, in supporting a case like Janice versus AFSCME, 
those business interests do wish to diminish the influence of organized labor and by extension diminish the influence of the Democratic Party. Right. But politics is very much central to to what's going on with the Supreme Court case. Well, Daniel, I wanted to touch on the First Amendment part of this because I, I find it interesting uh, that, you, you know, you're basically going on a, a free speech argument uh, for this type of a case, which I think for a lot of people looking from the outside, they wouldn't normally associate one with the other. Where sure. do you where do you fall on that? To me, this is the way I look at it. Again, I understand the argument, um, and and I know Daniel's written a lot about this argument, and I understand. Hey. I understand Hello. that. Hello. Um, how? Hi. <laughs> hi. I thought that question was. Yeah, Dan. I, I, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead, Dan. Go ahead, Dan. Um, sorry. Uh, I think the way to look at the the free speech issue, I think it's you know most people are not union members today, so it's hard for them to grasp how the connection between the two. The issue that Mr. Janus argues why this is a free speech issue is because collective bargaining in the public sector is different, and so the first their first argument is that it's inherently political, which is to say even if he's not a union member and he's only paying his agency fee, which is supposed to only be used for collective bargaining and contract administration purposes, not for political purposes. Even in that instance, collective bargaining is over subjects of public employee pay, benefits, and working conditions. And clearly, ultimately, those, he argues, are political positions to the extent that public employees want more generous benefits, that they want higher pay. Those things may be good for public employees, but they have costs that rebound to taxpayers and so on. So the first argument is that this is inherently political and therefore he's being compelled to support union speech, whatever positions the union takes in collective bargaining. Right. The second argument is that drawing a line between the collective bargaining side and the politics side is impossible in the public sector because Basically, you're directing both activities at the same entity, which is the government, whereas in the private sector, it's different. Your collective bargaining, let's say, over here with your business firm or an employer, and then you're directing your political spending and activity at the government, You know, whether that's the state government or the national government. So a line between the two things is easier to see, whereas in the public sector, it's really almost impossible to sort out the two. So you are always ending up, if you're someone like Mark Janus, as subsidizing or being compelled to support speech with which you disagree, hence a First Amendment violation. William, your reaction? Well, my reaction is that government employers are still employers. And under our system of labor laws, um, and it's different in other countries, but when a union is organized in a bargaining unit, and it could be a bargaining unit, it could be a school district, it could be a particular agency within a county or municipality, or it could be an entire, you know, an employee is falling under an entire branch of government, like the executive branch of government in a bunch of different, uh, in a bunch of different, you know, agencies and workplaces, they're still employers. Um, and, and beyond that, you know, workers who go to work in those jobs have, you know, you know, want to, the majority of them, I believe, still want to be able to negotiate over the wages, hours, working conditions, uh, benefits of their employment. And, and under, under our system of laws, you know, patterned on the National Labor Relations Act, public sector unions 
have to represent everybody in their bargaining unit, whether they choose to be a full member of the union or not. And so, you know, the argument on, on, on behalf of, of the public sector unions is that, you know, they still have to represent these workers. They're still trying to represent all workers in their best interest. The unions themselves, membership organizations, has, you know, has ways and abilities being involved. And so what what the anesthetician um, is going to do is is undermine them and by extension undermine the, you know, potentially as working conditions of working people. And so so to me, that's an argument that holds more sway. Yeah. And on that front, I respectfully disagree with my, my colleagues. Okay. Well, uh, William, we're losing your phone there, so um, we Sorry have to end it right there. No problem. Don't worry about it. Thank yeah. you both for joining us. Uh, William, Daniel, thank you all the best, and enjoy your weekend. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.